0: everyone and welcome to Living in this Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. This week we have a really sweet episode. Um, I'll tell you about it in a moment. But first I just want to let you know that I am hosting on December 8th um, from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time a virtual workshop. If you can't make it for the live event, you can always um, register and be sent a link to the workshop. Um, You can consider offering it as a gift to someone who might need some extra support during this stress-filled season. Um, I definitely feel the stress too, so um, you're not alone. So some of the questions that we'll be um, addressing or exploring, in the virtual workshop uh, how do we identify our needs when the demands of heteronormative, colonial settler and patriarchal holiday discourses threaten our self-determination that's a topic in and of itself many many topics but I want to frame things in a way that um, really addresses the structures of violence that kind of shape and create a kind of constricted Um, set up emotionally for this this holiday season? How do we navigate caring for ourselves, our partners and our friends during this holiday season? How do we nourish ourselves? And what can we generate excitement about? So if you're interested, um, go to my website, uh, livinginthisqueerbody.com, or you can follow the link in my Instagram profile, and you can sign up for the December 8th Uh, Workshop. And if you want some support one on one, you can always sign up uh, for a one on one session with me also on my website or through the link in my Instagram profile. Okay, so this episode is basically my inner, angsty, confused, and searching 20 year old self interviewing the creator of a zine, much beloved. To me and so many folks that I know and love. Thank you, Cindy, for making Dora scene from 1991 to 2001. Doris made me feel like my inner world mattered, and that consistent message was critical for me at a time when most of what I knew about was skills for shutting down my inner life. Um, Cindy wrote her zine, Doris, like she's figuring out the human condition. She makes writing about the simplest and most common things, playing music, childhood, cooking, or sex, resonate with universal understanding. She helps us make sense of more complex things like the satisfaction of doing useful work, natural curiosity, the ability to use logic, gender dynamics, introspection, the need for challenge and change, combating depression, and creating art and literature. She shares and explores emotions that go along with having an abortion, rape, dealing with the death of family, or sexual harassment in a context that is enlightening and personal, feeling like a close friend opening up to you. What's most impressive, though, is that she relates these things into every article in her zine seamlessly. And if you want to find out about this scene or all all, all, all the other things that Cindy produces and has produced, you should go to Doris, Doris, com. That's Doris three times. So www.dorisdorisdoris.com. You can also find Cindy at Cindy underscore Crab, C R A B B, on Instagram. And Cindy is the author of the long running feminist autobiographical zine Doris and compilation book Encyclopedia of Doris. She edited the zine and book Learning Good Consent, also an amazing read. She is a somatic experiencing trauma therapist living in Pittsburgh. And I am indebted to her for being brave at a time when I didn't know how to be brave in my writing and in my work. And I'm honored truly to have Cindy Crabb as a guest on Living in This Queer Body. Thanks everyone for listening and if you can consider making a donation on patreon patreon patreon.com backslash living in this queer body or giving me a review like actually writing the review on apple podcasts um consider this a gift to the podcast for the year i appreciate it okay and i appreciate you thank you Cindy, thank you for joining me on this podcast. I am really honored. I was just on the phone with my brother who said, is this person one of the most famous people you've interviewed? Because he, <laughs> I introduced him to your work through like through your zines so many years ago oh and I'm sure he'll be embarrassed to hear that but I mean truly like you are an icon for um me in a lot of ways um, I really love your writing and yeah more broadly just what you what you've done with it so I'm looking forward to kind of getting to know you in in this way as well so thank
1: well, you I'm super for being excited here. to be on the podcast
0: <laughs> cool so I guess we'll start with the question I usually start with and you can kind of go wherever you want with it. When you think about how you came to understand or learn about being in a body, what comes to mind for you?
1: You know, the thing that first comes to mind is I was, uh, I was born in the 70s and they had this kind of fad about water babies. And so I learned to swim like before I could walk. Right. And I just remember swimming like, just swimming a lot as a kid and just really loving being that kind of mobile and surrounded by sort of endless space and movement and just the joy and pleasure of
0: of swimming underwater, mostly. Would you swim um, in a pool or in a lake or...? In a lake. I grew up in Minnesota, so yeah, yeah you could good.
1: open your eyes, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you um, still swim yeah. today?
1: Uh, not as much because I have some ear problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But uh, but I miss it. Yeah. 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 And the other thing I was thinking about too about learning to be in a body was like when there was. Like, when I was a little bit older, and there was violence in my family, I would like take this blanket out to a meadow kind of by our house, and I would lay on this blanket and really watch the insects. And I would sort of dream about how one day, like the deer would find me and I would join this deer family. But I remember like just really like watching insects and being so like entranced by all the bugs and all the intricacies of them, and just how that, Sort of focused curiosity and mm-hmm. wonder really sort of was took away some of the fear you know and mm-hmm. created this peace and quietness inside It's like a little disembodied but also really embodied
0: yeah i mean that's I, I guess that's something that I really am interested in talking to you about, mm-hmm. in part because I know you've and I want to hear about this, but I know you've done some you know some pretty deep work around somatic experiencing therapy and just I'm curious what you what your thoughts are on on that kind of idea of like sort of embodied and sort of not um and Mm -hmm. and the way that the kind of sort of not and sort of embodied can can be somewhat regulating and soothing in a way, like picturing you. I think that image is just really powerful to me, especially as like a trauma therapist, um, someone who works with people who, you know, move in and out of different states of regulation a lot because of their trauma history. Just thinking about that, that image that you had to kind of move away from the difficulty and overwhelm of what was happening in your home. Yeah. But you... You sort of brought yourself there and then found, as you said, this kind of focused curiosity within yourself that put you in a place of like reverie or you know imagining mm-hmm. that that was really i, I guess made things more useful for you yeah
1: i've been thinking about it a lot. I mean, I think about dissociation a lot because it was so much of my coping mechanism for so long, and I still really love the feeling of. Of sort of these days, I call it dissociation light, but uh-huh. <laughs> of like being being a little disembodied. You know, it's a very relaxing feeling for me. Mm. Um, but I think about it. I'm also a trauma therapist, and you know, I know how like distressing dissociation and that kind of like fragmentation can be and was for me like most of my life. You know, like mm. just sort of like I would feel. You know, like when I was a a teenager or something, I, you know, I looked like a boy. I wanted to be seen as a girl, but I didn't want to do that work that you had to do to be seen as a girl. And so I like felt one way on the inside. I was treated as in a different way. And then I wanted to fight for myself, but I also wanted to like run away, you know? Mm-hmm. And there was this like sort of discrepancy of what I could do or how I could be in the world. And then the other thing I've really been thinking about, sorry if this is a little detached, but was like, you know, in families of violence when there's like real real deep care there, you know, Mm -hmm. like like my family had, you know, I really loved my parents and I really loved my abusers, you know,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and like to be able to hold the like both things yeah. you just kind of have to compartmentalize them completely yes. Yes. you know mm-hmm. and then and then how that compartmentalization gets carried into adulthood can become kind of wild
0: mm, yeah do you feel like you can speak a little bit about how how that did kind of carry into your you know early adulthood or how it manifested in your early adulthood, probably in ways that were very helpful for you and some ways that weren't.
1: Yeah. I feel like some of the ways I carried that compartmentalization is by like, on one hand, like really wanting to connect with people and like really diving in and going, you know, really wanting to open up all the way, Mm -hmm. you know, and just be seen and be, and see them, and get really deep, and really close, and then on the other hand, like, really not giving a shit, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I'd be like, I don't know, you know, maybe at this point, someone would have diagnosed me with borderline back then, Mm -hmm. but I mean, it's so clearly, and borderline, you know, is like a trauma response, I think, so, Mm -hmm. you know, there was this, like, there would be, like, a flip, it would be, like, Oh, this person's I really am so fascinated by them, so interested by them. And then there would be like one little misattunement or one mm-hmm. kind of offsetting thing. And I would be like, never mind, you know. I called yeah. it like the three week rule. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would date people for like three weeks, you three. know. Mm-hmm. And then it was like something would would switch. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it that I think I've been thinking about this idea. I've written a lot about consent and so I haven't really written about this so much because it's kind of maybe a little bit of a fraught topic, but you know, I think sort of the way the consent dialogue unveiled over time is that like there should be these real clear ideas of what you want to do and not want to do, you know? Right. And like, you can set boundaries and be like, here's what I consent to. Here's what I don't consent to. Right. And for me, it really wasn't like that. You know, there might be one part of me that totally wanted to like be having sex, you know, and another part of me that totally was uninterested and another part of me that was like, you know, analyzing the whole thing, yeah. you know? Right. And so then it was like, when I had to look at that, you know, I freaked out. I would freak out and just be like, Oh, was this? Was this consen- like, was I consenting or not? You know? Mm-hmm. So I think there was this fear of really looking at, at that kind of mixed feelings or fragmentation that kept me from really being able to form solid commitments with people.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, in some ways it's, the way you're describing it sounds a lot like how many people describe, you know, memories of like a traumatic event and and they describe it as their, as, from the perspective of, you know, floating above it or, you know, it, uh, watching it unfold, right? And mm-hmm. I think in some ways that's, it's really important. I like what you're saying because it's, it, what's really important is to take into account all of the different parts of oneself that are, impacted by events but also are at play in our daily lives right you know that there's parts part there are parts of ourselves that are carrying a lot of hurt parts that are carrying a lot of like longing for connection and it sounds like you really you know one thing that you struggled with is really struggled with that part of yourself that that would you know cut things off as a protective measure and I wonder maybe you could talk a little bit about how you've learned to navigate that impulse or that part of yourself as you, yeah. I think it's like, there's these, you know, because
1: there's so much at stake, like when it's like an intimate relationship or there's, you know, physical, the physical body involved Mm -hmm. and there's been abuse in the past, like we sort of have these like rules for ourselves that we don't have in other places. So like, you know, like so I go like to a restaurant and I'm like I get soup and it's like, you know, spice level seven and it's like a little too hot, right? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm like taking a bite and I'm like, ooh, too spicy, but also delicious. Like, hmm, do I really want this? Like, mm, not really, but kind of, you know, and like there's all this like navigating that, right. you know? Like right. I'm going to eat this. Or like, you know, I go to like a show and like my head hurts, like my body kind of hurts. Like, I don't really want to dance, but my friends are dancing. Like, I'm going to feel kind of left out if I don't dance. And I know I'm going to feel better if I dance. So like, I choose to dance, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, so I've been thinking, I was thinking today a lot about this, like idea about like choice rather than consent, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, what do I choose to do knowing that, you know, there's not like a cut or dry answer about whether this is like exactly what I want to do, you know? Yeah. But that I can hold like these gray areas of like part of me wanting to move forward, part of me having some hesitancy, like giving myself, having given myself the permission to really explore what that hesitancy is about, like not overriding it.
0: Yes. You know, Mm Hmm.
1: But just being able to be like, oh, there's that hesitancy, like that's that part of me that's like, afraid if I don't do this, I'll be deserted, you know, Mm -hmm. and then I can like orient my partner like I've been in this partnership for 10 years, like I'm not getting deserted, (laughs) you know, like, I can sort of like address whatever it is that 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 part is like signaling, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of just trying to override it with like, oh, I want this. I don't want this. I consent. I don't consent,
0: you know? Right. Yeah. That either, or, I mean, that's, that's kind of also like where the spiritual bypass often comes in. I think, you know, that, that idea of just like getting out of the uncertain or uncomfortable set of feelings that feel kind of ambiguous, Mm -hmm. which for someone who's experienced trauma in their bodies is not, not a very tolerable feeling. You know, there's a kind of impulse to want to, to know, is this okay? Or is it not okay? Is this good or is it bad or is it not safe? And yeah, it sounds like you've, you've learned a lot from that. Do you think it was the training that you've done in, in somatic kind of based therapy or, I don't know, like your experience with navigating mm-hmm. sobriety or, you know, like what are the things that do you think have sort of helped you to build up that, I don't know, like tolerance for ambiguity, yeah. and difficult feelings? I had like a sort of young therapist
1: for a little while mm. and she was pretty amazing. She was an old earth firster. <laughs> she was what? And, uh, an earthburst you know oh, that oh, group earthburst.
0: yeah who became a young yeah <laughs> so that's amazing yeah that's a good yeah. interesting trajectory yeah i know we did a bunch of work on sort of the
1: different selves you know yeah like i'm actually reading a. Re- I just started a really good book called the fragmented selves of the trauma survivor mm-hmm. um it's really excellent it's it's it takes sort of a fragmentation approach, but then also somatic. It's really good. Anyway, we did, it was right when I was getting sober. Like I drank a lot in my, um, thirties, mostly late twenties and thirties, and then started to get sober in my late thirties or something. And I was right when I was starting to get sober and I like lived by myself in the middle of nowhere, literally. And, we did a lot of work, you know, like I think growing up we had, there was like a big, like inner child kind of, um, framework for like healing, you know, yeah. which I had tried to do a little like nurturing the inner child and that was nice and everything, <laughs> but it wasn't like sufficient, you know? And then there had been a big, like dive into your deepest trauma and like, right. you know, uncover it and uncover all the memories and, yeah. you know. And that was, you know, Mm re-traumatizing. And and her approach was more like making friends with the disparate sort of voices and cells in your head, you know? Which I feel like most people I know seem to have some, you know, like some amount of like the negative voice, you know, the critical voice, like the child part, you know? So... I think it's applicable to a lot of people where you like to sort of hold that voice a little separately with some compassion, you know, mm-hmm. and say like, I hear you buddy, but like <laughs> maybe tone it down a little bit, you know? Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so with that work, I did a, a bit of like, just trying to like, Feel what it felt like to like be, allow myself to like connect with some of those, like the critical self, you know, the child self, like what it felt like physically a little bit and tried to just,
0: what did it feel like? Allow them
1: to, scary, Uh (laughs) a little crazy making, you know, yeah. What nice. She had me watch Spirited Away. Have you seen this movie? Yes. She said she was like, that movie's the psyche of the traumatized child. <laughs> and that each character is like a a person, you know, like as part of your psyche. Mm, interesting. And, uh yeah. So that was a good visual mm-hmm. framework to sort of put it all in.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I think that practice, whether that relates, people relate to that or not, was really like a way to be, start to be like kind to myself rather than like punishing, yeah. you know? It was just like, I hear you, voice. Like, you're telling me I'm stupid. I should think about this thing I said like 10 years ago over and over and over again. But, you know, it's okay. I hear you. mm Mm-hmm to sort of bring this neutrality to it. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm always curious, uh, you know, about how people kind of, and and I can relate to this myself, you know, sort of coming to more of an acceptance of um, the multiplicity of oneself, you know, like the parts that you don't Mm -hmm. want to exist and, you know, the parts that don't seem to let go of you. And what have you found that, I guess, supports you in that practice of, you know, aiming at more neutrality? Um, like, what are the kind of like physical conditions of your life that have helped you, um, if anything, to, to sort of support being able to do that? If that, does that make sense at all? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, moving away from like a real chaotic life mm. helps. You know, like quitting drinking definitely helped. And like doing the, you know, I went to a somatic experiencing training, which is a three-year training. And I did work through a lot of my own trauma and sort of how my body had stored fight-flight kind of stuck fight-flight patterns. And, you know, there's some like simple techniques that always really helped me, which is like, pushing one foot into the ground and then the other Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know it's like this sort of slow motion running you know like pushing the hands into the thighs or couch and then releasing are these sort of just like a little bit of like self-regulatory movements Mm -hmm. that help Mm -hmm. I think really learning about how the nervous like that it was a nervous system thing yes and not like some kind of like you know, something that I wasn't doing good enough. Yeah, like you know, a but that it was failure like failure
0: every time. Yeah, I'm exactly. dysregulated. It's like you're, I mean, I think that goes back to the, like, let's say the borderline diagnosis or something like that, right? Where it's like this indictment of your, you right. know, yourself. Yeah. So moving away yeah. from that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so being like, oh, my nervous system, like, all right, I see you. Like, (laughs) what do you need? Like, a little orienting, you know, look around a little bit, see if there's a threat in the environment. Oh, yeah, no threat. Like, go back to grazing, you know, Mm -hmm. like, some things like that. Um, I think really, like, learning to be trying." Learning to stop trying to rescue people so much. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then figuring out some of my limitations. Like I don't work very well in groups, you know, like I'm just not an organizer. I wish I was. I like organizing, but I'm actually just like, it's too agitating to me. At this point in my life, I aspire to be a, a better organizer at some point. Mm. So like just identifying that like, you know, I'm more of like a one-on-one yeah. kind of person. Mm-hmm. has been just more supportive.
0: Yeah. How has your, your writing, your practice with writing or your relationship to writing, like what does it look like now?
1: Mm. I'm working on a, on a book right now. Mm.
0: Yeah, let's
1: see. My writing practice is pretty shoddy. (laughs) But I think it's nice for people to know because you don't have to be like, you know, I think there's this idea of writers as being like, I write, I wake up 6 a.m. and write every day and stuff like that. And my writing practice has never been like that, never. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll like, typically, my pattern is like, I'll think about something I'll think about like, oh, I want to start writing again. It's been a while, you know? And then I'll be like, what subjects are speaking to me right now? Or like, what do I feel like is out there in the world that like not being talked about in the kind of subtle ways I wish it was? Yeah. Um, like, what do I feel like, you know, people would benefit from like having a more like accessible language around Mm -hmm. um or like what am I struggling with personally that I've sort of come out the other side of that I feel like would you know serve others so I sort of think about that stuff and then then I spend some time just like talking to other people about what they think about those subjects you know Uh yeah and um that's usually like two months of no writing just thinking (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and talking to people, and then like, and then I like take some notes, and then I forget about it and get distracted, and then I like sit down and write a bunch for like a month, you know. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And that's always been how I do it. Mhm. But I always am like happier when I'm writing, so like, I uh. I always feel like I should have a more stringent practice, but at this point, I'm just sort of like this is my practice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Although now that I'm working on this book, I'm today is my first day. I'm going to go have a a weekly writing group with a friend of mine. So we'll oh, see cool. how that goes. hmm
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a. Uh, I was curious to ask you because I think you know, the way you're talking about your process now, I I have no idea if it was, um, you know, similar, let's say 20 years ago, but there is something about aiming for the subtlety of experience that is not being addressed that I feel like was really a part, you know, was part of your work with, you know, Doris Zine, um, Mm -hmm. and other things you've written, um, like that's kind of caring. Sure. Yeah. That
1: was always kind of,
0: I came like before I was
1: like a punk or whatever, like before I was into zines, I was like in like more, I, I hadn't gone to college, but or I had gone for a year, but I was around people who were really college educated, like political people mm-hmm. and who were super articulate, you know, and came from that sort of um, background of having an opinion, arguing that opinion with a lot of facts you know? Mm -hmm. And I was more curious about like, how do we like come to decisions? Like, how do we come to opinions? Like, how do we formulate stuff? Like what's all the things being left out, you know? Mm -hmm. And similarly, and back again to that curiosity versus fear thing, like, you know, I just felt so limited back then. And still to this day, kind of about like the topics people talk about, you know, like when I was in my twenties, it was like, music, tattoos, traveling, you know, train hopping, like, these were like, all. this was the limit of what you could really talk about. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, this is boring, like really boring. And I found like through writing, like, you know, it was a really great way to just, you know, first, I wanted to be like a fiction writer, and then I wrote scenes, but like, to be able to really like watch people like as a fiction writer to be able to like watch people and try to really capture like how they speak, how they move, like bring this real curiosity. Yeah. to like the movement of bodies and like the speech patterns of people and how to really tease apart the differences was something that gave me a lot to to focus on when I was in public that was like interesting and positive and like curiosity making rather than these sort of like dull repetitive conversations about who saw what band or whatever Mm -hmm. and uh yeah and then the zines too like you know and today even also like you know I go to parties it's so boring a lot of the time and so like I like to come prepared with some kind of like something I'm curious about you know
0: Mm -hmm. yeah totally (laughs) yeah (laughs) I can, I can definitely relate to that, you know, but I, I mean, that, that, I think that comes, that aspect comes a little bit, yeah, from maybe an introverted sensibility or a, a kind of easily over overwhelmed or or sort of, oh, bored sure, with, yeah. you know, the kind of mass social world. And I imagine that, Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's similar, you know, if I, if I kind of have like a thing I want to talk about or, uh, you know, it it just, it is, it is helpful. I guess I'm thinking about you, you know, younger you in the context of, um, as you said, like you kind of being entrenched in these discourses, a lot of them were, um, you know, in some ways they were aiming to be extremely, you know, radical and transformative, you know, these discourses around, Mm -hmm. you know, like the black, you know, black block, anarchy, you know, like Mm -hmm. anarchist politics, whatever, you know, lifestyle stuff and punk life and anarchist life and, and, I guess for me, it's just interesting because what it sounds like what you've come to, and not that you've, you know, I, I'm not presuming you've abandoned all these ideas necessarily, or what, but it seems like that perspective of kind of observing and being curious sometimes is actually brings us into a much more transformative space than these kind of rigidified, you know political stances and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you were were really immersed in like a dogmatic, in some dogmatic scenes. Yeah.
1: They were dogmatic, but the first, like, the first like anarchist scene I was part of wasn't very dogmatic. Mm. And I think it really set the stage for me to like, want something much more embodied and much more like, complex and Mm. you know like it was they were it was intellectual but it was like really creative yeah and playful and really committed to like undoing power structures within our group Mm. not just like fighting against you know yeah Yeah. I mean it was pretty special but Mm. and like the feeling of it, like I was in the first black block in America and like the feeling of like being like part of something yeah, bigger and like supported like yeah. that, you know, just like in this group of people that just like had your back, you know, and that were are moving as like one creature, yeah. you know, just was so transformative, you know? Mm-hmm. And now like I went to a, well, I was at like an anarchist book fair or something. And afterwards, like people left and they were like dressed in black and like, you know, kill all cops or whatever. And I was just like, Ugh. I mean, it just didn't yes. feel the same. Yes. <laughs> like it was more performative. Like it was yeah. less like people were like together, moving together yeah. as this like, as this creature and more of like a a performative I mean, and I think performative anger is really important and we do need a place for our anger, you know? Sure. But, um. But.
0: yeah. Mm. I love that. I really love that image of like the way that you've deeply felt in the midst of probably, you know, what I imagine to be and kind of some of what I know to be very um. like violent and frightening circumstances. And yet, being kind of buoyed by this, this group of people, um, in, in a really Mm -hmm. deep and profound way that, that allowed so much possibility, it sounds like allowed you to imagine, um, individually and collectively allowed you to imagine so much.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I think there's like, you know, for me, trauma made me run my adrenaline really high. You know? Mm -hmm. And so when I found like other people or scenarios where the adrenaline, yes, the collective adrenaline was at the same level as my typical adrenaline, I felt so seen. You know, whereas most of my life I felt like just crazy, just like totally unseen. And like everybody was on a different vibrancy than me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when everybody's adrenaline was up, I was like, Yes, you know. Right yeah, and similarly, with punk, like I didn't really listen to punk music, but, like a lot of the people I ended up with, which were less of the performative punks and more of like just deeply, deeply traumatized people who didn't know, like how to who couldn't you know, function in the world the way we're supposed to. yeah, like they also had that
0: high adrenaline often. Yeah. I think in some ways, you know, the way that when you're talking about that, it makes me think about back to the, the nervous system regulation, you know, that there's something about mm-hmm. being met with the same level of intensity that you're, it's like being on the same frequency that's, that actually can be quite regulating, you know? Um, For sure. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I, that makes a lot of sense to me actually. I guess one thing I'd like to talk a little bit about is your relationship to queerness and I guess specifically queerness, you know, this idea of, of like, uh, how you came to maybe appreciate the notion of queerness as I don't know, maybe also something that allowed allows for mul- a multiplicity of self to exist. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know,
1: queer like didn't exist when I was like growing up. It was like, you had to be bi or gay or, and there was like a ton of gatekeeping. And when like queer came out, like, first of all, I didn't, you know, like, I didn't know what my desire was even though I slept mostly with guys like um it wasn't like because that was where my desire was necessarily it was just that's what happened Mm -hmm. and I really like love the I love all bodies and I like really loved like cis guys too like just how vulnerable they would be was like treasuring you know it was like I just felt like all their lives they'd been like performing or like expected to know what to do and uh when I like started like when the Antioch policy came out that was like you have to ask for consent all the time for each separate sexual move like I started like asking my partners you know like is this okay is this okay and that helped me stay embodied. But it also, like, really was, like, the first time I think anybody had ever asked these, like, cis guys, like, if they were really into what was happening. Like, not in a, like, are you into this? But, like, in a, like, you might not be. Yeah. Or, like, and, like, I was, like, pretty much, I mean, I slept with tons of people. I was very promiscuous and, you know, didn't really have that much judgment around it. But I was like shocked, not really shocked, but in retrospect, I'm shocked that not more people know this because pretty much everybody i slept with, like, seemed like they told me I was the first person they ever told that they'd been abused as children. You know, like all these cis guys. And it was like this this permission was given to them to be like vulnerable by like, this treasuring of their bodies you know Mm -hmm. and it was very powerful anyway Mm. so like I loved that and I loved I loved you know men and I also really like felt like naturally I was probably drawn more to I was naturally always really drawn to like androgyny you know like Mm -hmm. the first the first crush I ever had was definitely like on someone who I was like, Oh, I don't know if that's a girl or a guy, you know? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. but there was like so much gatekeeping. It was like, if you're by, you have like one foot in the door of patriarchy. There was just like, mm-hmm. it was, it was just a shitty time. And, uh, so when queer came out, it was like, not only could I like love whoever I loved, but it also was like, this whole like gender presentation thing where like everybody saw me as a boy, but I wanted to be seen as a girl, but I wouldn't like, I wouldn't like shave my mustache or whatever, you know? And like, mm-hmm. like all that stuff like had a place, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I could like, I didn't have to be, cause previous also like all the cis girls or gay girls would call, would think I was butch, you know, mm-hmm. But I really didn't like feel butch. I felt more like, All kinds of ways, you know? Yeah. And so it really opened up like, oh, you can be all kinds of ways. You can be this one minute and this another minute, (laughs) or like, you know, it just made it more like for me at the time, like you didn't have to perform your identity,
0: you know? Yes. I think embedded in that, you know, that notion is is, is, you know, kind of back to this curiosity, you you know, it it requires conversations potentially, um, with people who would, I don't know, maybe ask you, like, how do you relate to your, like your gender expression or how, you know, what does it feel like to you to like, there's a kind of opening up of, of, you know, more nuanced dynamics that, um, can become possible sometimes. I mean, not always, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. not always Mm -hmm. the case, but. Yeah. Yeah. I've been curious about, I guess I've been curious about your recent, somewhat recent like Instagram videos (laughs) where you're revisiting some of your old stories and kind of what prompted you to do that and how you, yeah, how you're thinking about that. Um,
1: uh, <laughs> okay. I've been living for like 10 years. I lived for 10 years in the rural area where there was no, um, no cell phone service.
0: Oh, we wow. just had
1: really just dial up internet until a few years ago, <laughs> oh. which is crazy. Right. So like I moved to uh, Pittsburgh a couple of years ago. Now I have a cell phone. <laughs> right. So I'm just trying to like. Uh, honestly, I'm not totally sure if this is very interesting. But so I'm writing this. I'm trying to write a couple books or just figure out if I want to write these books or not. One of them is a political autobiography about the '90s, basically, mm-hmm. and um, the other is a, a utopian post post-apocalypse utopian novel. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I need to have a more social media presence, but also it seems kind of fun. It's so totally, I, was, it's, I
0: just... Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I'm asking, I, yeah, it's like a, ran, a kind of a random thing to be asked about. But I guess the reason, the reason I think it's interesting is because it does seem like you maybe have some sense that the stories that you were creating that you're sort of revisiting publicly mm-hmm. are, they're, they're still really important and they have, there's more, there's kind of like maybe a new audience or a more expansive audience for these stories, but the the kind of like tone and the way that hearing you read them, it it's it's really, it's really kind of captivating to me and it, it feels like a p- very particular voice, you know, it's like you have a very particular perspective on storytelling. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And I, I'm, I was glad about it because I feel like it's, it will help, you know, a more like a, a younger audience to discover your work and, um, a more expansive audience.
1: Yeah. I, uh, a lot of my stories, I write them to be written out loud. Uh huh. So it's fun. I've always sort of wanted to um, to do something with them, right. where it's I read like,
0: them. So yeah, it's, it's like an audio book. Have that like an DIY audiobook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah,
1: I'm so, excited about it too.
0: Good, good. So. I guess the last question, and again, you can kind of go wherever you'd like with this, but if you think back to, you know, that sort of younger version of you in a meadow with a blanket, watching the bugs, is there anything that you would want to convey to that sort of younger version of you, knowing what you know Mm. now and having lived your life thus far?
1: I think I would say you grow up you're safe. You have a miniature horse. <laughs> <laughs> you're beloved. Your curiosity will save you.
0: Yes. Yeah. I love that. Give so, her a big hug. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can tell the the audience how they can learn about your work, current, future, past, how can they find mm-hmm. you? Yeah, I
1: um, have a website at cindycrabb.com, C-I-N-D-Y-C-R-A-B-B. And then I'm on Instagram too. It's like Cindy and then like an dash crab. And I also have a book, Learning Good Consent, that I edited that's on AK Press. Mm-hmm. That's cool.
0: about it cool yeah we'll put links to all those things in the show notes and I really appreciate you being there and I look forward to hearing what people think when they maybe discover for the first time your work so I am I'm really grateful for you being here
1: well thanks so much for doing this podcast I'm really grateful for it too I'm really great thank you